welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. We're always taking your suggestions as to who would make a good subject for an interview. And a lot of you have requested that we talk more to the navigators. So we hooked up with Libby Greenhow. She's two-time competitor in the race, once with the all-female team SEA, and then most recently Team Sunhunkai Scallywag. And I won't need to tell any fans of the race that there was plenty to discuss there. Also, she gave us some pretty strong words about what the race should be doing to help female sailors for the future. Libby Greenhouse is a twice competitor in the ocean race. First, as navigator for Team SEA, bridging a 10-year gap for all female teams participating in the race. And then more recently with Sun Hunkai Scallywag in the last edition. Now, she is known for a shrewd scientific background and a real skill at knowing how the weather dictates what's going to happen out on the race course, possibly honed by years in the British Meteorological Office and working for the British Olympic sailing team. Libby, thank you very much for talking to me. I know that as a youngster, you competed and competed at a high level. I mean, you know, World Sailing Youth Games and things like that. Um, some people I know have decided to brush up on their weather knowledge to sharpen up their sailing skill. For you, was it, no, I, I, I fancy a career in weather or was it always about the competing? Um, I guess actually because I sailed all my life, um, it was sailing that brought me to the weather because obviously ultimately we were there going, oh, what's the weather doing? Can we go sailing? And back then we were looking at like teletext on the TV to get a forecast. <laughs> um, the inshore waters teletext forecast was pretty good for the ponds that we sailed on. So, um, you know, and, and because of that, and obviously because my, my parents sailed and we had like a little wind anemometer on our house. So, you know, we used to have a, a keen interest just through that. And I think just from that, it just always interested me. And um and I guess because it, it, it did, you know, the sailing that I was doing and all of that, it did enhance that. But ultimately it was like, oh, when you're thinking about, oh, what can I go on and do? I'm like, well, this is a subject I'm interested in. And as I went through college and, and school and towards university, you could start to see that there were potentially careers in sailing that were also associated with the weather. So I kind of also felt, oh, it might have the potential to keep me in my sport or you know, vice versa. And um, yeah, it's a difficult call at that, you know, when you're sort of 16, 17, 18, to sort of think about what you want to do. And whereas I was like, well, actually, I love the weather. It supports my my other main passion that I'd equally like to pursue as a career. So it was kind of married together like that a bit. And it's not my forte. So help me sort of draw the distinction between meteorologic. I'm going to have to try that one again. A meteorologic. You know the word I'm trying to say. Someone that reads the clouds and the winds. And then a navigator, because somewhere along the line, you've gone from knowing what the wind's going to do to knowing what to do with it. Was that the involvement with the British sailing team? Where do we go from one to the other? Um, I mean, that's a, an interesting question on that front. I mean, obviously, reading the wind, you know, I'm very much initially a small boat sailor, dinghies, and like you said, did the, the youth wells, did the Olympic program. And so it's very much looking at how to read the wind and the, and the effects the land has on quite a, quite a small scale with probably the largest scale for a long time that I sailed on was something like the Solent. And, um, you know, maybe you've done a bit of cruising, but not really hugely offshore or anything. Um, but, you know, you were always looking at that, you know, how do I get around the, the course the fastest? And it's the same thing, but just almost on a bigger scale with the with um, navigation in a way. Um, and actually with some of the larger scale stuff, it's with when you go start doing offshore stuff and looking at island effects and just the different effects as you uh, do offshore routing, you're sort of like, oh, wow, this is even more obvious to <laughs> see to then be able to better explain the stuff that's happening at the small scale because you're like, look how... And I guess it also made the biggest thing it made you realize is actually super hard to interpret on that smaller scale. Because when you look at the bigger scale, we're already in a massively turbulent airflow. I mean, the classic one I always think about is the Canary Islands and just how far downwind the effects that has. And yet you might go and race on a, in a, in a at the Olympics or in a smaller boat class in like a two mile section and be trying to read that. And you're like, wow. And yeah, over and above it, you've got this going on. So I think it's just fascinating. And yeah, I mean, I guess they get, they go hand in hand and from the weather side of things and the fact that going and pursuing a weather career, that was 
you know I understood that bigger bigger scale picture but often as you don't often find someone who's probably also got that smaller scale you might meet someone who's a weather for a trained weather forecaster and then sort of goes into navigation but understanding that balance with racing and the smaller scale is quite a a, 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 a you know a blend of skills in terms of being able to go actually well now it's a priority on this much smaller scale to think about this versus this much bigger scale this is happening and to kind of be able to bridge all of that is, is quite a, a, a difficult thing depending on what angle you've come from it, it really fascinating i've never thought about it in that way but of course yeah small windward leeward you're trying to predict a left shift and then over a hundred mile course actually you the same. You know, yeah 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 um Okay, so then Team SCA then, when you come into Team SCA, I'm wondering, do you come into Team SCA as, in your mind anyway, a fully-fledged navigator, not only being able to do the weather routing, but also being able to join a team like that and go, I'm going to be able to plot where we're going to go, how we're going to go, and I'm going to get us around the world efficiently? I mean, the Team SCA was a hugely unique opportunity in terms of my um, offshore navigation experience. It was arguably not a lot at that moment <laughs> and when I first sort of applied. Um, but the biggest benefit that the team saw that I had was the knowledge of the of the weather, basically, that, mm. and that understanding versus, hey, I can open up the software, I can run a route, it's showing this, this, and this, and... You know, and so whereas having that uh, that bigger understanding of the weather, and you know, I'd spent eight years just looking at systems, looping, and satellite imagery, and all of that kind of stuff. Like I think that kind of skill or knowledge, or just you know, experience, much like you say, going around the world four times, just gives you that experience of just stuff that until you've sort of done it, you almost can't get. And I, I can imagine as well that surely you've seen and you've probably been frustrated by people that can open the laptop and run the routing software and load in the weather model, but can't tell you why the routing and the weather model is saying one or the other. The, 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 you know, the skill, but they haven't got the knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's incredible now what um, those tools allow you to do and the, the mathematics behind them and the stuff it's, you know, what it's able to tell you, but almost it sometimes it gives and empowers people a lot, but it almost gives them just the wrong amount of knowledge. <laughs> you know, it's like wicked. There's now a line on a screen. I know what I'm, where I'm going, but mm. to be able to interpret the pitfalls or the, the strength in it, because actually it's only drawn that line based on a, a one second difference to a different route that could be a little bit more like this. That's then only a one second difference. And then suddenly you're finding actually the bias is really one way or, um, you know, it's, if you if you start five minutes later, it makes a difference, and you, it's just because you caught onto that system. And but you know, there's there's ways of people learning that in a different way, as opposed to I guess I would look at it from the weather systems and think, oh, the pitfalls are probably here. You can use the the navigation tools now, the routing to find that by you know, most people are then taught actually always run a route like this. So mm. you know, you 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 know run it so you start an hour earlier or an hour later and see if it makes a big difference and run it so that you push it this way and see if that makes you know and they sort of try and find the weaknesses that way um so you know there's different ways of how people probably have now learned to use those tools to then interpret the weather and find their best route well whatever you did back with team sea and leg one, it was certainly working. I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the legacy of Team SCA, which we are very much still feeling in the industry. And I know with the Magenta project, it's something that you're still actively involved with. And we'll come to that. But let's go straight into that nav then. Leg one, I got the impression that you jumped on the boat relatively late compared to some of the other team members. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but either way, when the boat left the dock, I'm sure as any navigator in a one design fleet, you're under pressure to find that opportunity to split off and build some gains. And you guys, I mean, those first few hours, you had a storm out of the, the med, you were on fire and, you know, leading out through the straight. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, relatively late to the team, arguably I sort of officially joined them in June and most of them have been there for some up to 18 months. Um, and yeah, I think the biggest thing was there was this whole unknown of, you know, how fast are we really? You know, how will we go? That that sense of things. 
I didn't think other than yes, okay. Uh, I haven't gone around around the world, but we had experienced people on our boat, which I think people people maybe sometimes sort of forget. But you know, Sam has you know already um, gone around once, and well, pro- almost probably three times, arguing with a, full, a few stops or breakages along the way. D done five times mm. or something, and and um, and then you know Liz, you know there were quite a few that had had obviously already already gone round, and you know Sam's strength probably with her sailing is is significantly in that in that nav department and arguably actually when i think she first joined the team that was the role um that she initially saw herself potentially filling um and so that was why in terms of the nav role like the strength of me coming with the weather was an addition to that and it was very much a a shared role that in terms of the nav stuff while i did the bulk of the kind of grunt work and the decision making and the whole process there was very much a a shared role and um, yeah, I think people say, oh, you must have been looking to kind of make breaks and pull away from the fleet or do this. But it was like, no, no, we were just always looking to take what we felt was the correct route and the fastest route. What What are those kind of moments like as a, as a you know, as the navigator that's making those calls? Because I, I can imagine, like you say, you go one way, you go the other, then you've got to converge again. For everybody else that's sailing on board the boat, they've, you know, they've got to think about, grinding on the winch, pulling that, moving the stack, weight forward back. There's so much that they've got to think about in that moment. But the the moment for you and the decision for you, for you, I imagine, plays out so slowly while you're waiting to see what you've done is right or wrong. How agonising can those I moments mean, feel? Yes, yes and no, because I think once you've done the tack and you see the numbers, you're like, right, that's the numbers we're on. Mm. And you're, you know the outcome. From my perspective, I like, and I think that's the other thing when people struggle with big losses or big gains is like actually conceptually for me, I already know. I'm already like, yeah, this is going, this is going to be a massive loss, mm. and then you sort of go, this is not going to be good, but like the concept of it, and when especially when a loss builds up after scared after scared, like whereas I'm like, no, it'll be like a 400 mile loss or you know, like you you know how long it'll be, but then you'll also be like, no, this will now then it will compress and we'll get right back to where we were. Um, so like, you know, we have big moments like that of extension and compression, even on that first leg where it's like, no, this is going to be a whopping loss. <laughs> and while I can get my head, while I understand that as it builds in each time and you're reading out the schedule, you're like, yeah, we've lost another 50 miles, everyone. They don't necessarily find it quite so jolly. It, I imagine it's a little bit like, you know, a, a, an aircraft captain over the tannoy or, you know, the warning lights go on and the captain comes over the tannoy and you're reading the tone in their voice to see. But do you have to be a bit careful about the look on your face when you come up the hatch and maybe, you know, relay the information? Yeah, I mean, I, never tie, I used to sometimes not dread it, but I'd be like, all right, here we go. And I kind of not made a joke out of it, but I made a bit of a thing. It's like, oh, we're doing scores on the doors, everyone. Because it was a bit like... You know, and, 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 you know, each time you would then not caveat it, but you'd talk about it and say, look, we are going to lose every sked for the next four skeds, then that's it, and mm. it is going to suck. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it feels to have to... And everyone's itching to get that position report, and it just feels like... And they do, even though you've caveated it or spoken about the fact that it just feels like a sucker punch to some of them. And everyone reacted differently. There were some people that you would just be like, oh, okay, cool thanks, carry on, not a problem. And other people that you, you know, literally you could just see them physically go, oh, and you, you know, and that's, and I mean, and that is something I think as a team that people probably talk about, like how do you manage and deal with skeds and, you know, what's the process and everyone's going to deal with it differently, but actually how do we work out um, how to support ourselves? So I think our biggest thing was like, you know, we did so many compressions and things like that throughout the, the race that, I was almost like, well, it doesn't matter. There's going to be another opportunity and we'll just take that instead. And and I think we we're always quite good at that. Like, even if we had made a loss, we were pretty good at finding the next opportunity and making sure we got it reasonably right. And as we were saying, obviously, um, you know, uh, Team SCA, certainly for leg eight anyway, you know, come away with, with a leg win. That's a vindication for any team that, you know, they can hold their own and they can perform. And then for you yourself as well, where you were saying at the beginning that maybe you came into that edition of the race without as much navigational knowledge as some others, but you you claimed the B and G 
Navigator's price for, for the addition of the race. And, and I think for, for people that maybe don't know what this is, this isn't B&G saying, we'll give you a prize. This is the other Navigators in the race saying, yeah, you impressed me there and sort of accumulated point system. I mean, that, that had to feel pretty good. Yeah, no, for, for sure that did, yeah. Like, I think any acknowledgement from your peers and your surrounding sailors is always always good, especially when, you know, that addition, I think the majority of them have done three or more um, laps around the planet. So, yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, definitely that was sort of made me think, okay, you know. And I, th- and I think also it's that whole thing, you know, there's always that bit of doubt of, Again, like you know, who was I almost in the in the, the scheme of things to sort of come in and sort of do that role? So um, I think not a bit of vindication, but yeah, I think it sort of shows that actually um, the knowledge is there. Well, because because then at the end of that um, uh, that edition of the race, you know, you you seem to sort of step back into you know very familiar shoes, advising um, from the shore, working with things like that. Obviously, the Magenta project, which again, you know, I, I want to touch on in a, in a minute. But then we get to Team Sunhun Kai Scallywag, and you join that team. And I'm really interested to discover how that conversation started because David Witt is, um, and certainly at that time, he was such a character in the race. And he didn't hide anything, you know, when he was happy, when he was sad, it was all sort of there. And obviously that fit between the skipper and the navigator wasn't perfect. Steve Hales was on. He stepped off after the second leg. I think um, Antonio Fontes was on for two legs. He got injured. Then it was your, you got called up. Were you, did you know David beforehand? I mean, how did that sort of come about? I had sort of contacted the team because they had, um, I obviously recognised they had one less crew member effectively. So there was right. that opportunity. And, you know, arguably I'm a small person. I've also gone around the planet on one of these boats already. And in a way, it was kind of like, not why wouldn't you, but you could, even in the setup with not necessarily coming on as a navigator, but someone. Uh, someone coming on with that strength is only going to be a, a bonus, especially arguably when a lot of their team didn't have a huge amount of experience in the race. Um, and so I felt there was an opening there. And um, and yeah, and I guess, you know, while I'm a navigator, I'm also a sailor. And sometimes I also think people often forget that, like actually I've sailed more, my, more most of my life and raced, at, you know, all sorts of boats at many different levels. And and I think that's something that sometimes is, is forgotten. So, like, I sort of felt I came with uh, quite a few skills to add to that crew, even if that navigation role wasn't there. So I had been sort of chatting to them from the beginning of the race on and off as to what their thoughts were and basically sort of said, you know, if you're thinking about going down the, the route of having the extra pair of hands, which I think you probably will be fairly shortly, <laughs> um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, this is who I am and here I am kind of thing. Because as you say, that was the first time that the boat had sailed a quote unquote fully crewed. You know, David Witt had said he wanted to try and save weight. And it's not just the weight of a human being. It's the weight of the water, the weight of the provisions, the weight of everything. So here they are now, you guys are sailing off leg four and you're sailing with a full load of people. You've just jumped on board. Can you recall what the what the feeling was like for that team at that time? Because I think it's fairly safe to say they didn't, hadn't matched up to where they'd wanted to be. I mean, who who does really, unless you're, you're, you're leading, but then somebody comes on board, like you say, a bit of, bit of 65 experience. They've got the numbers right. Was it, oh, this is, you know, finding a good gear here. I mean, I think, I mean, I literally uh, turned up two days before we set off on that leg. So <laughs> having done the Sydney Hobart and then flown it, almost flown directly from there. Did you, hang on, so sorry, two days. Did you even have time to learn everybody's names before you left the dock? I mean, not really. I remember, (laughs) this sounds bad. I remember for a while getting Nipper and Alex um, a bit confused because then I was like, who's Ben? And Ben was Nipper. And I was like, ah! I was like, but I was fortunate in that I did know Parco uh, Mm. previously and I did know Tristan who also joined at the same time as me. Um, so from that perspective, and obviously Fish is just hugely welcoming and puts you at ease pretty pretty easily. And 
you know, and they're all super lovely people. So, and I knew Anamika obviously um, pretty mm. well. So um, from that perspective, it was kind of not, but I have to admit to begin with, I was like, oh God, that just won't use the good job. Our names on the backs on shirts. And had this, the way that the 65s were being sailed changed much from where you were before? Because obviously the winches are still in the same place. The sales wardrobe was a little different, but did you, were you able to sort of jump on and... Did you have to relearn? Nothing that I had to try and re-remember. Um, <laughs> nothing had really changed, which was good. Obviously made that a bit easier. And arguably in my initial, my role as the navigator, I was like, okay, the nav station's still in the same place. The buttons are all pretty much the same. And they'd obviously got used to sailing the boat without my pair of hands. So manoeuvres and stuff didn't really change initially because it's like, well, this is how we're doing it. And then basically I kind of just tagged in and helped out on um, some handles more, you know, my mus- massive muscle power, um, always good. But um, yeah, so from that perspective, and I guess it just, and then what was interesting was seeing seeing the manoeuvres and then perhaps being able to go, oh, you know, effectively we are saying shorthanded or with less power. And actually these are some of the things that we benefited from with SCA in terms of trying, in terms of how you do things. And so, you know, I think as and when there were opportunities to then help sort of move that stuff forward but ultimately you've just got to be able to do the maneuver that's yeah doing a maneuver badly could completely ruin your race or make you not bat miles but ultimately that's not the thing that necessarily wins it wins you the leg so that was kind of okay it's more about finding the straight line speed uh, and certainly on that leg as well because um i mean i want to i want to sort of take apart this leg in, in a bit more detail because this was the leg for Team Sun Hunkai Scallywag sailing into Hong Kong. This was the one that, you know, there was that wonderful quote from David Witt saying, uh, you know, he'd trade all of his world championship wins, of which there are many, to win that particular leg. It was the one that really mattered to the to the team and the backers and the supporters and everything. It's, I imagine it would be lovely to jump on board a boat, off, be able to offer some advice about, well, on Team SCA we did this, feel like you're contributing, but you are the navigator, you are responsible for that job. And relatively quickly into that leg, we get to this infamous moment where you have to backtrack from, you know, this this badly charted or, well, depending on which way you look at it, different charts having differing opinions. We won't point fingers. But what was the moment where you basically realised, okay, we're going to need to do something that's going to feel really hard here. We're going to need to unwind ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty tricky, that for sure, in terms of realising and then getting and then getting uh, witty, witty and Waro, we all had a big discussion, we looked at the different charts and then it was like, which side do we go? And, you know, I was all for chucking attacking and they were like, it's got to be quick. So, you know, even within that, then a discussion of how to best do this as we're still going towards it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, I, and just realising, wow, now we've, fully shot ourselves in the foot here but I guess ultimately being like there's a whole world of leg ahead mm. and we're all going to stop so you know we've just got to deal with it obviously this whole thing kind of unravels because after the the addition the um addition of the race before with team Vestas wind um bumping into St Brandon Reef race control and monitoring things relatively tightly they give you a little bit of a nod to say you know, uh, all within the rules. Um, as a navigator, as somebody there, maybe you got the email, maybe it, w- it was picked up by somebody else. How was that moment received by Witty and the rest of the team? Because like you say, they have a reputation for being, if you're part of this team, you're part of this team. It's loyalty before anything else. I could imagine feeling quite nervous having to go, we have a problem, and it kind of fits into my yeah, remit. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the worst thing that you can have happen as a navigator. And was yeah, was I was like, wow, I've literally stepped on this boat not very long. And probably one of my thoughts is that would be interesting. <laughs> what happens in <laughs> Hong Kong um, when this leg's over? But you know, you've got you've got to put your hand up to it. And like I said, you know, it was then like a discussion of which way do we want to go around it. I was like, this is what I look at, but you need to look at this because this is. A, pretty big decision or yeah big decision and 
you know, I want you to be aware of the whole situation. So as opposed to just going, right, we need to attack everyone. Everyone being like, that's a bit weird. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I guess there's different ways you can you can handle it or yeah. what have you. But I mean, either way, it was going to be pretty obvious something was up because we either had to tackle freaking bear off and jive. So, uh, <laughs> which is quite a big maneuver either way. So um, yeah, and I think it was just because look, this is a situation um, we've had a nudge about this. I've looked at this, this and this. And yeah, I think it's, it, yeah, but ultimately it's the, the whole thing is the last thing you want is to be sat on a reef. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, interesting, the, the way you talk about it quite pragmatically, that I'm sure comes with all the years of competitive racing that you've done. But if you did have any doubts about what might happen when you get to Hong Kong, as you say, the the rest of the leg, or certainly around about that middle point, you know, so I'll paint the picture. You're a little bit behind having to now, you know, you've got some miles to catch up. But what you do with the ability to maybe read ahead... When did you see, I mean, I won't blow the moment, you can have it, but when did you see, hang on a second here, we could overtake not one, not two, but quite a few boats if we play these these next 24 hours correctly? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was difficult to say whether it was like, oh, if we play the next 24 hours correctly, we could overtake. I wasn't like, oh, we could overtake them, but I was like, well, we're totally going to compress because they've stopped mm-hmm. now at whatever, and that always happens. But then you always worry, oh, well, they get out and then off go again yeah I mean I thought we'd probably close and then uh, then we got to that point of closing and I was like wow now they're really screwed we're going to be miles ahead here uh, you know I put my hand up you're, you're obviously a better navigator than me but I saw the deficit that you guys had at that point in the leg and I thought okay well they might be able to overtake one or two boats, but this is going to be a huge mountain to climb. And I remember David Witt saying, absolutely, this, come on, no, we've got, to, we've got to win this leg. This is the one we've got to win. And I thought, you're crazy. You're talking about winning this leg. Uh, when he, you know, when he's doing that on the boat, and, you know, he turned out to be correct, but was he convincing you and the other members did it did you need convincing or was that the atmosphere that was on board is we we got to win it and we can win it i think there was definitely the element of you know he had pressure there was definitely an element of pressure on him to be like we've got to win this so when we had that deficit the the it wasn't such a jolly moment <laughs> shall we say on that front understandably you know like he, you know, there was some pretty interesting conversations at that point. But as, uh, I mean, as you go through and you start to show things on the route, it's like, look, if we just do this, we can definitely close and we can get to this point. Or, you know, being able to demonstrate that helps kind of keep a keep a balance. But I think possibly one, of, I mean, this is obviously only my first experience of a mixed team in the in the ocean race, but a lot of people would say, oh, you know, how does it compare to the women's team? Surely the women are all, Wee! and I was like, no, man, we were way more like this. The men's team, it's like, whoa! Like, maybe it's just our team, but I'd say I was as surprised at how more up and down, or it was more up and down than I expected, I guess. Maybe, actually, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't that bad, but it was definitely more up and down than I expected. Uh, yeah, so, that's crazy is like I'm in a glass cage of emotion right now, being said. <laughs> which I was like, wow, okay. Cool. <laughs> I mean, obviously in a tongue-in-cheek way, but still meaning it slightly. <laughs> well, you, you, I mean, it must have been fantastic then that that dogged belief that we've got to win this one starts going that way when, you know, we're still with a lot of leg left. Yeah. You're pointing at Hong Kong, you're making this incredibly efficient track and everyone else is is wallowing. So then I want to go, go uh, on to this incredible moment that happened on the leg where uh, Alex, and and this is where, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Alex, I believe, was on the pole. And, you know, like all of us, you go, oh, there's a sheet in the water. There's a, you you just, just reach a little too far. You just move a little too far. You just go a little bit too close to the risk and he falls into the water. Obviously, you guys get him back. Um, but what, you know... Put me on board there. Alarm bells go off. You know that, that the heart must have stopped a bit. Yeah, I mean, I was I was asleep, so uh, woken up 
to man overboard and you're like what the and we're going along and so i literally scrabble out of the bunk go to the computer to see if anyone's hit the button and while they've hit the button so you have to hold it for four seconds is that which is actually a pretty long time in yeah. those kind of moments like and so it wasn't so nothing had been pushed um so i hit the button there grabbed my deck screen came on deck and was just like right and um you know no you couldn't see him anymore um i probably was on deck about maybe, probably 90 seconds i'd say maybe a bit more but after um but by that point they were already self-furling and uh and turning around so like i think the efficiency with which they went into that was um pretty phenomenal but when you turn around and you're like no one can see them and they're like we can't see him we can't see him and they'd thrown one thing off the back um but it just kind of blew away <laughs> yeah like, well okay um and i guess you know I, I mean i guess the big thing was like when he did fall they did a big wiggle in the track um and so you know i was pretty confident that quite well we're going to get back to where he was and it's not that windy like we're pretty lucky with the daylight the the wind conditions but you know and hugely lucky that alex then put his arm up like that because i mean we all wear our team kit black the sea's pretty dark the waves i mean it's near on impossible to see someone you're like it's insane um on that perspective so yeah i mean i was yeah i think everyone was like holy moly this is not good but I don't know. I think just I, I didn't have any doubt at that moment that we would find him. I remember at the time a lot of, you know, armchair commentators, but, you know, good yacht sailors. They weren't on board. So you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. But a lot of people being really impressed with the time from man overboard to back, you know, on board. Touch wood, I've only done man overboards when it's been okay, someone's going to throw a fender overboard. And even then, to try and match, I, I, I think it was, was it like seven minutes or something like that? You know, on a big boat hurtling along, it was very efficiently done for, for the team, I thought. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, like the, yeah, I mean, within the 90 seconds by the time I was on deck, the, the sail was pretty much half furled or half furled. And that's the big thing. And also just the fact that, I mean, Wissy very quickly just helm hard down, dead down wind. So took the speed off. Because obviously we were going along with the mow up, so you know probably our maximum speed for that wind strength sort of thing, and so just to try and really park us so we're not suddenly ripping away too quickly. So we were pretty much dead down wind, but and then obviously it makes it much easier for the minimal crew on initially minimal crew on deck, and also that you know we're in warm climate, so everyone can run on deck and without having to clothe up and stuff like that, and turn the handles pretty quick and turn the boat around so yeah uh, and and then of course you guys carry on you, you know you're back underway like i say i mean it time wise small moment but obviously you know a, a, a significant moment you guys going on to to hong kong i can only imagine that the celebrations once you got to dock uh reflected all the hard work that, that you've done because that was the team's home port and you see you know david witt's face as you guys cross the line in darkness but my word i mean a, a, a grin as big as a harbor i mean it, you could see how much it meant yeah i mean yeah he, he yeah exactly and for the team the home team like all of it it was it was huge and and it, i guess it's just hard to get your head around like i was still like wow i've just kind of stepped on this boat this is all happening and then a whole world of stuff happened on the leg and uh and yeah it's kind of sort of even now you sort of think about it blimey all that happened on that one leg and um uh, yeah and it but super super cool to be part of the team in that experience as well i think like that was you know really cool uh, and then obviously in the next leg down to Auckland you guys perform really well as well and the, and the numbers were all going pretty well i mean everybody watching this any anybody that's followed the race will have known what happened with Team Sunhunkai Scallywag on leg seven, where, you know, sadly, John Fisher goes overboard, you know, um, unable to be recovered. Um, you you mentioned before that you hadn't met John before you stepped on board on board the boat. I'm sure anything like that leaves a, a pretty strong mark. Um, as somebody that never met John, um, 
is there any way that you can kind of, um, yeah, sort of describe what piece he he was to that team and 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 why he's so fondly remembered by so many people? I mean, I, I think he was the essence of the team to to a large extent. Um, the sort of never give up um, that whole element and that aspect that a lot of the team did that they did embody or do and and do still embody like wanting to provide opportunities as well and and you know and it was his, his dream to do the race and you know part of that you know and with that and his you know lifelong friendship with Whitty it was kind of almost his desire to do the race that probably partly more commit helped convince Whitty to go yeah yeah let's do this actually I want to do this with my with my best mate and um and he was just so willing to help he was like the source of the earth person no sort of nothing you know yeah he just would accept you for who you are and I think that and that's what it is and um and just an incredible guy on that front like would always help anyone and um hugely supportive and was like yeah we can get better we are going to make mistakes and um yeah and I think it's yeah I mean it's hugely sad and just yeah I guess just the flip side of you know you, you someone goes overboard and you find them in seven minutes and then someone else goes overboard and you don't even get the opportunity to find them so I think that's yeah I mean yeah the time goes by and it doesn't get any easier that's for sure I, I, I yeah um afterwards you know when the when you guys get into the um Chilean coast I think um obviously you, you know you carry on and the team completes the race, completes this dream that, you know, you're, you're saying was John Fisher's dream. Um, how difficult was that or how easy was that to know we're going to get back on the boat and we're going to keep going? I think um, there wasn't really a doubt. I mean, we were <laughs> bad and good, but we had six days at sea trying to get back ashore where we probably ran through all the emotions under the sun. Um, and even interesting while we were out there, some people were instantly like, we've got to keep going with the races, the boat's got to carry on. And, you know, at times it was like, no, that's it. We're just going to pack up and, you know, game over kind of thing. And, uh, and I think, but ultimately it, it was his dream and it, it felt like it would be a bit of a disservice if we didn't carry on. And it's hundred percent. Um, I'm pretty sure that John would not have wanted us to, to stop. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think I, I found it hard in terms of stepping back on and the responsibility of what I felt from what had happened. And that weighed on me, um, quite hard and, you know, and also wanting to get back on and, and perform well. And, and actually I think in both races, that leg, whether you do well in that leg or not round to, um, Brazil, it is quite a, a forming leg in a lot of the teams and uh, and actually a lot of teams find another gear in speed partly because you just go through a leg where it's generally pretty windy and you're having to push yourself because you haven't got an option that then you, you you step up another gear and I think that definitely happened for a lot of the other teams on that leg while we were we were going dealing with um getting back in the race and so I think even so from that perspective that was quite hard we definitely probably lost a gear there and also you know, just the, you know, Fish was so intrinsic. He was one of our watch leaders. He was just such a core member of the team. So I think, you know, the, that sort of also um, uh, changed the team, you know, makes it hard on that front. But we're pretty lucky with the people we met. You know, Parker coming back was a big asset. I think that was one of the biggest things as a team. We all sort of said, yes, let's do it, let's carry on. But but we need to have Parker. He's, he's a, a core part of this and... Um, so it was amazing when when he came and, and joined us, and then you know through the course of the race we had a, a few different people join, and I think they were all brought different things and, and great things from you know being um, uh, strong offshore sailors or just you know part of the, the Scallywag um, team as well, and I think that's a, a big thing. I don't mean to pry, but there's one thing that you said, and I don't want to just leave it hanging for anybody else to sort of insinuate whatever they think but you you just said um you know it was hard for you personally where you were talking about the responsibility of what happened i mean obviously a tragic accident 
um, I can only imagine that everybody in some situation like that would find a reason to wish that they had done certain things differently. But, um, you know, that's, I mean, you don't wear that around around your neck, do you? I, I, for a long time, I struggled with, you know, I guess as a navigator, I felt responsible. I should have been able to find him. I mean, you're looking for a needle in a haystack, but when you're sat there and you've got someone who's just lost his best mate and he's like, we've got to find him. And, you know, you've got a crew also and and comms back short. But you do have comms ashore, but it's incredibly hard. You know, we're in 55 knots of wind or something. And, you know, we're upside down for 45 minutes pretty much and just everything. You're like, it's, it's hard. And then you're trying to make your best educated guess on where we should look and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you sort of feel... I don't know. I, 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 I'm a, probably a massive overthinker and a lot of my friends would probably vouch for that. And so, yeah, you know, even to this day, there's times where I'll probably overthink about it and think, could there have been, is there something? I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm for, I would maybe wrongly so. I was probably, I, I never, didn't actually ask the others, but I was probably one of the first people that thought, well, we're not going to get him back alive, mm. but we can go and get him back. And, um, you know, and I think just from that perspective as well, it's hard for families and friends, you know, to sort of say goodbye when you kind of can't almost. But, yeah, so I think I felt that responsibility. And that's not that people were putting that on me by any stretch of the imagination. That's a a personal put upon myself. Well, you, you do carry on as a team. And it's interesting, one thing that you were saying um, about, the scallywag team is is it's this it is a team where you see a lot of youngsters in it you know uh, i mean you mentioned ben piggott and uh, uh, nipper i mean was 21 or something like that and a lot of these people are still with that team and still sort of working hard but you know you yourself you do a lot to help the next generation and this is where i sort of want to ask you about the magenta project because you've been really um vocal about females in the sport and I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but in the uh, edition that's coming up, there's been, you know, we've been keeping the uh, the female rule. We're going to see females in the boat, but I, I got the impression that you wanted things to go further. You wanted to see 50-50 maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me definitely given they've got the two classes. Um, it strikes me as crazy, dare I say it, but I have now, Um <laughs> that you'd bring in many multiple rules about age to make it youth, but why, and you've just talked about, hasn't it been amazing we've done this with uh, X, Y, Z with, in two on every extent. So from the last race alone, there's 22 women that have gone around the world. So it's not like there's not people. So why would you not just go 50-50 and show true progress? Like if you're putting in the thing about age, then you're already effectively limiting this, the previous experience because if you also are to go through the fleet there's not many that will still be under 30 by the start of the next race so you've already and in fact I think in the out of the women there's maybe only one but that's or two a push you correct me if I'm wrong there but so you've already practically wiped out all of them so maybe they can fill in the three roles that you're allowing for so you're actually already making it harder whereas if you're just 50 50 and then you know, why not put the age in and be like, okay, you've got to have two under 25. One's got to be a woman, one's got to be a guy. This is about creating a pathway of progress and why not make it completely equal? Whereas I also suspect that the youngsters that you get on board, you're more likely to take two young lads because they'll be like, well, at least they'll be strong. Mm. And that might be me being very cynical and I, and I, and it would be also quite disappointing if a team actually doesn't choose to do that, go 50-50 because actually there's a plethora of experienced women they could take. And, and a lot of these experienced women, I mean, this is, this is what we're, we're talking about with, with, with the Magenta Project. This is the thing where you are, um, you know, it's yourself, it's Abby Ela, Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of the sort of Team SCA crowd. Um, you've sort of, it feels like you've sort of taken it upon yourself to do the things that maybe, to use your words, the organisers of offshore racing and keelboat racing should be doing. Yeah, I mean, arguably, I guess our big thing is um, is advocating and lobbying with these events 
from you know and fair play the ocean race is actually ahead of the curve you can look at some other high level circuits that need to jump on the not jump on the bandwagon but really look at where they think the sport should be and and go and i think they actually have a responsibility for it um is my view um and um yeah you know i think that was something everyone from sca um you know we all sat together and set up the magenta project and and i think you know that's something that um that was one of the big things is like if we don't keep pushing now and even if you talk to the women that were from previous female teams or previously in the race, they say, they say the same thing of actually we, the momentum just got lost. And that was a big thing. We were like, we need to keep pushing. And it's hard, you know, even, and if the ocean race hadn't put the rule in, would there have been any women in the last edition of the race? Probably not, which is pretty tragic to think. And then you're like, and even with this rule, and then it's just a shame that if you, I mean, if you think about it, if you make it 50, 50, the people that then the pool of people that then have the experience, you're then instantly just changing that. Whereas at the moment, you talk to it's like, oh well, there aren't that many people to pick from. And it's like, well, that's because they're not getting. Whereas there's the more, <laughs> that's because they've had the opportunity and done it. And you know, whereas yes, you can. You know, there's also the argument because you know I would almost say with the 60s, so obviously it's a bloody tight boat, and I haven't been on it, so I don't know how it would be tight to sail with six, but you've also got to be a certain type of woman that wants to go around the world with five other guys in close proximity going to the toilet on a bucket next to them. <laughs> and you're the only woman on board and you're listening to four other guys chat for nine months of the year. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I also think that fantastic. Cause again, if they didn't have the rule, there's probably, it, you know, certain teams for sure would. Cause also I think a lot of the people that come from that angle will be coming from the bond day and actually, there's a bit more diversity there and and you'll see how the, the teams form that way. But ultimately, you know, even in that, I would have been like, it's it's a five crew setup, two have to be women. Or you can have three women, two guys, but it's as close as you can get to 50-50. Because how many guys would go around the world as the only guy in a four female team? Mm. Would, Good would question. They, how, how would they feel about that? Okay, you're coming around. Yeah, yeah, you've got a great spot. It's a fully funded blah, blah, blah. Top heads team, you can have a spot. How, you, how do you feel comfortable? How comfortable do you feel? And the trouble is, is actually we'll probably very rarely, I'm not saying we won't be in that position, but it's highly unlikely that you'll flip the table round that actually a guy can experience what a woman would experience. Or may, you know, that's just my sort of thought process on it. But yeah, I think, you know, hopefully the next edition now push towards more 50-50. But arguably, they haven't started this one yet. They could still change the rule and make it 50-50 for the 65s. Go on, Ocean Race, do it! Do it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, they'll watch this, but either way, I'll, I'll, I'll push it as well when I, when, when I get a chance. No one listens to me, but I'll, I'll push it. I mean, do you have an opportunity to maybe do that? I mean, have you still got that fire in you um, to come and do another one and, you know, do, do the 50-50, do the all-female, do, do whatever you want, but do you want to join a team and do the race again? Yeah, I'd love to join a team and, and do the race again. It's, I think it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like an incomplete thing, partly given what happened last time. Like I feel like I sort of need to see it through almost in a, in a way, but um, also it's just, it's, again, as anyone who ever says it, you kind of either love it or hate it, but it gets under your skin and it's, and it's such a cool thing to do with, such or you know the crews that you make the teams that you make and the experience that you have and just that feeling like I was even saying to Abby just today god just you know having been in lockdown and we've not been no one's really gone sailing I went out in just my little dinghy and was like oh just that feeling that moment you just step on the boat and push off the dock and you're like there it is actually that's that's the feeling I, I long for and and I just love the racing, like for me in terms of, I guess, what my knowledge and, you know, from being able to put the weather, the racing from right down to right, actually, this is a short course as we leave the start of the leg to, okay, now we're back into big gameplay and things like that. Like that is a, is a huge thing. Um, you know, the 60s really appealed to me because I think then the navigator becomes much more involved as part of the crew. And I sort of missed that aspect, like I feel, there's a part of me that's been like, oh, you're navigated. That's what you do. Mm. You don't necessarily need to be so involved. And 
on the 65s when you've got 10, you kind of, there isn't a huge amount to do once you're going in a straight line. Um, Poor old navigators, you've, you're banished to your little corner, your little huddle <laughs> corner. I mean, admittedly, I get to stay dry, but uh, <laughs> Um But yeah, I mean, for me, like that appeal, appeals usually to be able to actually be like, you know, racing, not that I wasn't racing the boat, but actually be part of um, making the boat go fast in a different way in terms of the driving and trimming and uh, and the setup and stuff like that versus sort of nudging people about the numbers towards changing that or going, oh, maybe we can look at something else or um, but actually being a bit more intrinsic, that's super appealing. But also with the 65s and the rule change, like, I mean, if it was a 50-50 or that kind of thing, I just think the, the appeal with the 65s is the fact that it is creating the pathway and perhaps the opportunity to pass on that experience and I guess arguably to maybe gain experience as a watch captain in that role um, or just, you know, even as the navigator and in that role where you've also got the experience of the previous two editions and um, are around um, people that have, have less experience. I mean, at times on um, Scallywag, it was a bit more like that. Like there was definitely a look to me to like, well, you've gone around the world on one of these before. Um, and, um, you know, I think on possibly on the leg from Hong Kong, other than it was only Parker and I, and then from the leg from Hong Kong to New Zealand, it was only myself that had arguably gone around the world on one of those boats anyway. Um, and so you sort of, you know, there was definitely a level of, uh, you know, not respect, but definitely a level of, okay, what do you think? And that kind of thing. And, you know, that sort of uh, opportunity to help and that kind of thing. I think that's super cool. And well, to try um, things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that what we get to see is we either get to see Libby Greenhall, navigator, or indeed, as you say, crew member on one of the boats, or if not that, plenty of your sailors that you're helping with the uh, Magenta project, filling any and all available crew slots that they can uh, they can find. Um, thank you very much for a very frank uh, conversation about um, some some very enjoyable subjects and some very difficult subjects as well. Thank you very much for talking us through it. No worries, it's been a pleasure.